A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Steve Alvarez is a professor at St. John's University in New York. He teaches a class there called Taco Literacy. Yeah, you heard me right. The class where you can study tacos, and it's the one in college. Yeah. So you and I, Steve, we have something in common. We both managed to find our way into careers. <laughs> hey, yeah. With some real good fringe benefits. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't complain about the research. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Hey, before we get into this week's show, I want to ask you to help me out real quick. We are getting ready to do a call-in show here on The Sporkful. That's where you and a loved one call in with a food-related dispute, and I'll try to help you out. Now, I'm not so interested in questions like, is a hot dog a sandwich? We're really more interested in a disagreement that might be like indicative of something bigger in your relationship with a friend or loved one. Now, I'll be joined for this episode by Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings of the podcast for Colored Nerds. So they're going to help me help you. If you want the chance to talk with all three of us, email me at hello at sporkful.com. Tell me your name, where you are, and what the problem is, and I'll try to help you out. Thanks. Okay, let's talk tacos. Taco literacy is based on the idea that you can read a taco. You can look at the meat spices, the tortilla, and each component unlocks something about Mexican and American history and culture. Who needs Shakespeare? Every ingredient of a taco is its own kind of poetry, to be analyzed and interpreted. What a piece of work is a taco. How noble in flavor, how infinite in seasonings. In portability, how like an angel. In deliciousness, how like a god. So pack up your Bob Marley poster in your mini fridge, because we're going to college. But this won't be a lecture. It's a field trip. We're going to join Steve Alvarez and his students for their end-of-semester taco crawl. But before we get to that, I wanted to understand why Steve created a class called Taco Literacy, why literacy and language are so important to him. So before we left, I spent some time talking with him in his apartment in Queens. Steve grew up in Safford, Arizona, a small mining town about two hours from the Mexico border. Safford was a pretty segregated place. There was one area where the white folks lived. Many of them were Mormon. The Mexican neighborhood was across the highway. Both Steve's parents are Mexican-American, but their family lived on the Mormon side of town. Knowing they didn't quite fit in uh, with the white folks, but then when I was with the Mexican folks, similar. And uh, food always became this thing when I had some of my Mormon buddies over. They were always like asking what's for dinner. They could smell things and they had a lot of questions. And they were happy when they got some of my mom's beans. My mom's beans were really were pretty famous. <laughs> but I never really had those kind of same cravings, for example, when I went to their places. So... Uh, through the food, I definitely, you know, was uh, being introduced to different kind of flavors and also sometimes be able to be proud of being Mexican. Uh, a lot of times, too, there was, you know, as it happens everywhere with folks, especially being near the border, a, a way of shaming people for having Mexican roots. And that was definitely something that came through both in my generation, my parents' generation, I'm sure down the line. And did you speak Spanish at home? Well, no. <laughs> this is also kind of complicated. And it's not a... a it's not a unique story. Uh, previous 
immigrant groups can think about the generation when, for example, Italian starts to fade away. Spanish was around, especially among my parents and whenever they spoke to other folks. But with the younger folks, it was more English dominant, except for words for members of a family and words for food. Did you wish that you spoke Spanish? I think uh, in Safford, not really. I think the wish was always to be heard. And uh, any kind of, let's say, trace of Spanish or a Mexican Spanish accent in terms of one's English was a way for folks to, uh, to be discriminated against. And if anything, I thought speaking better English would give me more advantages. So, so you're, you, growing up, you, weren't, you were basically monolingual. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you first started to have a different feeling about the fact that you didn't speak Spanish? I mean, well, early on, I do remember having some cousins who were bilingual and then being able to have uh, conversations with my grandparents, because my grandparents only spoke Spanish. I was a little bit of jealousy there because I noticed that the way they spoke Spanish sounded a little bit more informal than the way we were trying to speak English to them. Uh, and then later on, I, I would say, especially when I moved from Safford in Tucson, and there was a lot more people who were speaking Spanish, and uh, I started traveling more to Mexico, especially to places like Hermosillo and Nogales, that's when I started uh, really having questions about, well, why don't I know this? I mean, I, people expect me to, and, and I don't. So, you know, a lot of people would, uh, even my own cousins would be disappointed that I didn't speak Spanish. And then sometimes I felt like, yeah, maybe that is my fault. And then, uh, you know, there's also the other side of me that thinks about this kind of journey of recovering it and as being something that is an opportunity. And, and some, certainly that's made me um, have a more enriched understanding about myself. You feel that learning Spanish has given you a, deep, a richer understanding of yourself? For sure, yeah. Now I'm, well, now there's a lot more words that made a lot more sense <laughs> uh, that people were calling me, like especially a lot of bad words. I don't know. <laughs> my, my mom says a lot of this one word. I guess I probably can't say it because, you know, it's, it is a swear word. Uh, but I didn't know my mom was saying that all these years. <laughs> when I got to college, I was like, oh my goodness, my mom speaks like a sailor. This is incredible. <laughs> Uh, so things like that, and then also different words for foods, especially sometimes I didn't know what I was eating. I didn't know what it was called. Steve first started learning Spanish in his freshman year of college. When the professor saw his last name, Alvarez, he thought Steve was trying to score an easy A. But Steve needed his mom's help with the homework. Soon, though, he started picking it up. Really early back, I do remember when I would go uh, taking the stuff I learned in, in my university undergrad class and go to places like Nogales and Sonora or Hermosillo and just be able to order tacos, for example. Um, practicing on food was one of the, some of the first places where I would go and just try it out. And when they were able to understand me, that was pretty cool. Um, How did that feel? I mean, you're, so you're, you, were, you were in Mexico. Yeah. Speaking yeah. Spanish, ordering tacos in yeah, Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it would be, for example, I mean, because it's close, you know, close to the border, so people would speak English too, and they would speak to me in English, and I would answer back in Spanish. And they would be sometimes amused because they could see my, hear my accent, and then they would speak to me in Spanish. At that point, it's like, wow, it's pretty cool. All right, so now I can start to do this and, and maybe, maybe not be a local, but also have a different kind of relationship with people. Those experiences inspired Steve to create Taco Literacy. He uses the class to explore a central question of all his work. What happens when language, food, and people cross borders? Steve used to teach at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. It's a city with a large Mexican-American population. They even have a neighborhood nicknamed Mexington. He's written about the ways that Mexican food is changing America and the ways America is changing Mexican food. Before we started reading tacos, I was curious to have Steve read a menu. Nice. Oh, wow, that's, that's, that's a big menu. <laughs> <laughs> 
You can tell by looking at the menu that- I showed Steve the menu for a Mexican place in my town in the suburbs, a place I like a lot, called Tres Amigos Mexican Grill. It's owned by a man named Manuel Gomez, who's Ecuadorian. Right off the bat, Steve noticed the restaurant's logo. Yeah, first thing that strikes me are the uh, chili peppers with sombreros and the uh, the mustache. And they're also wearing those little white gloves. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, well, I don't need to get too much into it, but there was something that came out recently about those white gloves being involved with minstrel shows, with cartoons. But that speaks for itself. Let's just take a look at the food. I mean, the first thing that struck me is when I saw wraps. Like, oh, this is a burrito, but they do have a burrito. But uh, well, yeah. I, I don't want to start a big fight here, Steve. But I, I do technically believe that a burrito is a type of wrap. Oh man, we could go. I, I would go the other way. I think a wrap is a burrito. <laughs> That's what I, I was like. Come on, don't even front. You're putting in a tortilla. That is a burrito. I don't care what you put inside. I, would, I used to put macaroni and cheese inside tortillas, and that was that was a burrito. We let that debate go, and Steve continued to study the menu. And this menu is so interesting to me because I feel like you can see cultures coming together right there on the paper, but not in a melting pot sort of way. A melting pot would just be middle-of-the-road, watered-down Mexican food. This menu has opposite extremes side-by-side, coexisting, or doing battle, depending on how you look at it. Nice jalapeno. Okay, bowl of chili, pinto, refried, amigo chili. What? What? What did you say? Crispy calamari burrito? I'd do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's actually a law on Long Island. You're not allowed to open a restaurant and not serve fried calamari. You can't even get a license to operate. Hey, they they do got lengua. Well, that's what, so this is what, so this menu to describe it is like an 11 by 17 piece of paper. There's there's probably at least 50, maybe 75 items. Oh, yeah. But Uh, but way down in the bottom right-hand corner in this tiny little box, you see the section called Authentic Mexican Tacos. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, the smallest one, and it's uh, right at the very bottom. Lengua is tongue, and those authentic tacos are done on two corn tortillas with cilantro, chopped onion, and lime. Classic. That lengua taco is my jam. But at the very top of the menu, there's another section called tacos, and that's the American hard shell taco with the shredded lettuce. Steve noticed the difference in those two placements. And, you know, that this would be the first one you encounter assumes something about the audience and that this is sort of relegated to the bottom of the menu um, also says something to us, too. I sort of I feel like on my more optimistic days, I can look at the menu like this and be like, it's so great that authentic Mexican tacos are on this menu in a place like the suburbs or a place like Kentucky, where you lived and worked for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And that feels like progress on my more optimistic days. And then on my less optimistic days, I look at a menu like this and it feels like the authentic part of the menu is getting eaten alive. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I guess it depends on the day as well. And maybe (laughs) maybe on the day that sombrero wearing chili would be more offensive to me. And some days I was just like, ah, you know, I got other things to worry about. One note to add, I did speak with Manuel Gomez, the owner of Trace Amigos. He declined to be interviewed on mic, but he did tell me more about the thought process of his menu. First off, the logo, he found it on the internet. He said he just got a kick out of Peppers wearing sombreros. As for the food, he was pretty blunt. He said, quote, this is Mexican food for Americans. He says he needs to offer all these options to run a successful business. And he knows what he's doing. He's been owning and operating Mexican restaurants in my area of Long Island for 20 years. And in that time, He says he has seen some changes. About 10 years ago, that's when he introduced that little section at the bottom of the menu, authentic Mexican tacos. At first, they didn't sell. But eventually, Manuel tells me, a lot of the Hispanic people in the area who work in landscaping started buying them. 
and they shared them with their bosses. And the bosses started bringing their families in to the restaurant. Now, Manuel says he sells about half those authentic tacos to non-Spanish speakers. When he opened his latest place, he tried to get more ambitious. He offered items like chile rellenos, chilaquiles, and huevos rancheros. But they didn't sell. He took them off the menu. So, baby steps. Coming up, Steve Alvarez and I join his students and go from reading menus to reading tacos. Read this taco. <laughs> well, the first thing, of course, we had to unwrap it before we, we had opened up the book cover. But as you see, first thing you see is, is, well, you notice it's a flour tortilla. And that already is very different. And we go looking for good tacos in a very unlikely place. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm-mm, it's very good. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too. But I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, She's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. So they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Now, let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha 
is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch, whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. In last week's show, I embark on a quest to make a viral TikTok video. Now, I've barely ever used TikTok, and I'm over 40, so the odds are against me. But I try anyway, with the help of a few social media experts, including the Korean vegan, a.k.a. Joanne Lee Molinaro, and writer Bettina Makalintal. Now, you may be asking, why, Dan? Why TikTok? I think TikTok is sort of the place that all the new food trends are happening. It's where anyone who wants to be an internet food personality is starting out. And I think we can agree that if you want to start off in the world of like food and food media, the last thing you'd want to do is start a podcast. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) That episode's up now. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. Okay, back to the show. After I spoke with Professor Steve Alvarez in his apartment, he and I went to meet up with his taco literacy students at a nearby restaurant. They had spent the whole semester interviewing the cooks and owners at local Mexican restaurants and bakeries, reading about the history of Mexican cooking and ingredients, and writing about what they learned. This end-of-term taco crawl would be part culmination, part celebration. Steve had picked out several spots in the Corona section of Queens, where there are a lot of Mexican immigrants. The first featured food from Puebla in southern Mexico. So we are going to, known as Bella Puebla, but really the full name is Aquí en Bella Puebla. Where uh, we're gonna try some tacos árabes. Now, tacos árabes, that's Arab tacos. Yeah, and this has a lot to do, or really ties in directly with some of the Middle Eastern migration, particularly Lebanese immigrants to uh, Mexico. Here we are. Okay. You're in, in beautiful Puebla, All in right. uh, Queens, All Mexico right. 7 train. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, let's go. All right, let's go meet the students. Inside, Bella Puebla was decorated with streamers in the colors of the Mexican flag and Mexican tapestries. Spanish-language TV was on in the corner. I started meeting the students. I wanted to take this class because the theme of this seminar was just different from anything I've ever seen before. And usually for English majors, it's like like British literature or contemporary literature, but to have something, say, like Mexican food, it just sounded unique. And more delicious than British literature. Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) That's Cindy. She and I agreed we were both starving. While we waited for the food, I also talked with Roche. Knowing the history of the food you're eating, it's kind of important because you know where it comes from. So now I'll know more about tacos, the history of tacos. I'll know burritos aren't really like Mexican, the whole history of that. I think what it's is just, the whole history of that? Pop quiz. Okay. <laughs> um, they're more like um, a borderland type of food. It doesn't really come from Mexico. Like a lot of 
they called it, quote unquote, like the handlers of like Mexican people who would come to do work. That's the food they were given. It was really like food of shame. Nobody really wanted to bring out their tortillas because it also showed like your social class and all that. So I think now when I order a burrito, I'll be like, I'll just like flashback in my mind all the assignments I wrote on that and then still enjoy it, but at least now I know where it comes from. I think that's really cool. Then I met Ariana. Okay, so I actually got into this class on accident. Um, my advisor signed me up for it, and on my schedule it just said that it was a, an English lecture. It didn't specify like taco literacy or anything like that. So when I first walked into class, I was late, and I was like, is this the right class? But I sat down and I was like, okay, if he doesn't call my name, then I'll leave. I'll apologize and I'll leave. But he called my name. I was like, oh, okay. He asked me, oh, what's your relationship to Mexican food? I was like, well, I'm Mexican, so I grew up eating it. What did you learn about Mexican food from taking this class that you didn't know growing up as a Mexican-American? Um, well, I've definitely... Okay, so I'm from Texas, and um, there is kind of this idea of Tex-Mex not being real Mexican food, and I had always just kind of accepted that. Like, okay, it's not real Mexican food. But this class has really taught me about authenticity and what what authenticity really means and how it's really subjective because, you know, Mexican people came to Texas and in a lot of cases already lived there and just made the food that was available with the ingredients that were available to them. So, I don't know, it's really made me question that when someone says, oh, that's not real Mexican food, I'm like, how do you know that? At this point, the tacos arabes started coming out. Like Steve said, they're called Arab tacos because around World War I, there was an influx of Middle Eastern immigrants to southern Mexico. They brought the shawarma tradition of spit-roasted lamb served in pita bread. In Mexico, that morphed into spit-roasted pork in a flour tortilla. It's seasoned with cumin, oregano, onions, and sometimes Mexican chipotle sauce. All right, taco number one, taco arabe. I'm going in. Oh, my God. Oftentimes when you get the meat off one of those spits... At a less good place, it can be kind of like dried out. It sits in front of that, that heater for hours and hours, and it gets kind of dry. This is so juicy. And a little bit of lime juice on top. I think this is the best thing I've ever had for breakfast. <laughs> my ordering game was on point on this day, my friends. I ordered two tacos arabes, one to eat right away, one to read with Steve. Well, the first thing, of course, we had to unwrap it before we I mean, it opened up the book cover. But as you see, first thing you see is, is, well, you notice it's a flour tortilla, and that already is very different. What does that, what does that tell you? Uh, well, it could be number, one of two things. One is that we're, we're dealing with a Norteño taco, or we're dealing with a taco arabe. Um, in this case, we're going with the latter. <laughs> and why are flour tortillas more common to northern Mexico? It's a, well, it's a long story, but really it was the uh, ease of producing wheat in the northern frontier, and also the encouragement by the government I guess you would say economic development and also a kind of stigmatization of corn as being backwards or um, some, somewhat quote-unquote primitive. So the North was... Uh, part where, of, where did that idea come from? Well, that's been there since the Spaniards arrived, I'd say. And it was the, the food of the conquered being understood as part of the reason why they were conquered and a superiority of especially bread and the ideology of European or Western progress was also a conquest culinarily. So, so you're saying when the Spanish arrived and conquered Mexico, they were, they were like, you people are eating corn. This is why we were able to kick your butts. Yeah. And we, we, make, we don't have these silly tortillas. We make bread with wheat, and it's superior. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And, and, and so, so corn was stigmatized and wheat rose in the north and it became, and that is why we have flour tortillas today. I mean, really in the metropolitan centers. So that ideology takes hold in Mexico City and it became a way to, dip one, one's diet that was more um, wheat-based was the idea you're a higher status of a person. Oftentimes t- tied to race and class as well, but really it was um, a way to move away from indigenous cultures, indigenous foodways, and really to start to prize a European way of thinking of what is human, really, yeah. Despite the complicated history of the flour tortilla, Steve says he loves them. His family is from northern Mexico, so he grew up on his mom's homemade flour tortillas. I downed my second taco arabe, and we left Bay of Puebla. All right, so we're going to walk this way to 90th Street. Let's go. Next, we arrived at Taqueria Sinaloense. It's one of the few restaurants in New York that specializes in food from the Mexican state of Sinaloa, which is in the northwest part of the country. There's a lot of ranching there. While we waited for our tacos, I talked with a student named Swanee. The next time you sit down to a plate of tacos, what will you be thinking about that you wouldn't have thought about before? Um, the process of how everything was made. I think we take that for granted, where it's like, oh, the nixtamalization of tortillas and like... What is the nixtamalization of tortillas? Pop quiz? Uh, so basically it's where you would get the corn and you would put it in either calcium or li- like limestone and like in water, you leave it there and then the following day you would t- rinse it out and they do this so it gives vit- um, nutrition to it and also it prevents people from diseases and it also uh, gives it flavor and preserves it. And that's where the Europeans, when they took corn back to their homelands, they failed because they noticed that everyone was getting sick and dying. Okay, good job, Swanee. Hey, you got an A on your pop quiz. (laughs) (laughs) I also talked more with Ariana, the Mexican-American student you heard earlier. She's the one who signed up for Steve's class by accident. She's glad now that she did. I'll definitely be thinking more about the past, you know, of corn. Corn has been something that I've actually written a lot about and done a lot of research on, and like NAFTA and the importance of corn. How does NAFTA relate to tacos? Well, NAFTA, um, Mexico had to open up its corn sector to foreign imports of corn. Um, So American corn kind of flooded the Mexican markets, and it was a lot cheaper. And people who used to be able to make a living off of growing corn could no longer do that. A lot of them actually immigrated to America for opportunities. So NAFTA had a lot of unintended effects, you know, for Mexicans in Mexico and also for America, because that's how the, what they call the immigration problem began. That's one of the huge reasons it started, so. All right, you passed your test, you got an A. Congratulations, Ariana. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Our tacos arrived, and at this place, Steve had selected tacos de machaca. Steve read mine to me. Machaca, because in Sinaloa, a lot of people from the ranch, they would have to preserve their meat by drying it. So this one is egg mixed with dried beef, uh, tomato and onion on a flour tortilla, like a breakfast taco, really, really tasty. Ariana was especially excited for this one. She grew up eating machaca in El Paso, Texas. So there's actually a cafe um, that my dad would take me to growing up. He'd take me to school and we'd wake up super early and he'd go to this cafe like every morning. And I would always get the machaca plate. And it's basically um, almost like a brisket with scrambled eggs and they would like slather it in this cheese that was almost like a, like a queso that you would dip chips in. So good and definitely not healthy. <laughs> um, but so I have a lot of like good memories about machaca. So. I'm really looking forward to eating it here. Did you tell your parents about this class? Yes. (laughs) What do they think of it? 
actually interviewed my mom about her relationship to Mexican food for an assignment, and she was really into it. So. What did you learn from that? So a lot of people feel like if you grew up and like your parents, for instance, my mom's parents were way too busy working all the time to be able to cook, you know, really traditional foods. So she grew up with a lot of American food, but she later rediscovered um, how to cook Mexican food. And now she makes it all the time. And I grew up eating it. Yeah, it's just interesting that you can rediscover these things and reconnect to your culture later in life. The machaca taco was very nice, especially with a few drops of hot sauce on there. But then Steve pulled me aside and told me about the other specialty here, chilorio. Chilorio is pulled pork simmered for hours with hot peppers, dash of vinegar, and served with refried beans. Steve recommended it in a taco, of course. One of my favorites, something that my grandparents used to make. So what I have this here just reminds me a lot of going over there. Because um, this is kind of really hard food to find in, in New York. The chilorio is the one your grandparents yes. used to make? Yes, in Aloha food, for sure. That's where my, uh, my father's side of the family folks came from. So when I saw this place in my neighborhood, I was really happy. And I come here a lot. So <laughs> That is really good. It's very, they, they get the, the pork and the, the pork and the beans make it so smoky. But then also there's like a, I think she said there was vinegar in there. So there's like a little bit of like a vinegar bite zing to it. And then the fattiness of the beans and the pork. Oh my God. You know, sometimes you don't realize how good something was until days later. During the taco crawl, the tacos are best for my favorite. But now looking back, the chilorio is the one that I can't get out of my head. Just the depth of flavors, so much going on. Reading that taco was like reading Moby Dick. Only difference was I actually finished the taco. Thank you, muchas gracias. From there, we made a quick stop at Nieves Tia Mimi for some Mexican ices. I went with half mango and red chili, half tamarind. A perfect palate cleanser. It was time now for the final stop of the day. But this one wasn't on Steve's original itinerary. It was my request. I didn't pick it because of the tacos themselves. I'd actually never had them. I picked it because I thought the location seemed meaningful. It wasn't in Queens. So Steve, all his students, and I hopped on the subway. This is Times Square, 42nd Street. Transfer is available to the one, two. All right, we've got to be a little more careful here crossing the street. All right, you guys, so we're here in Times Square. The uh, cliche nickname of it is that it's the crossroads of the world. Uh, at any given day, there's probably someone from every single state and many countries come through here. And there's a taco stand in the middle of Times Square, a taqueria. Yeah, absolutely. So let's eat some tacos. Yeah. All right. Square tacos. Steve, what can you tell us about this place? I have no idea. I have never tried this place. I've seen it around before, but uh, just like you said, that it's in Times Square. And that it actually is in Spanish as taqueria, I think is really cool. And that it's next to a pizza spot which I think will give you some indication of what street food in New York is becoming. I'm looking at the menu. Yeah. Read this menu with me a little bit. Sure. The staples, guacamole and chips, chips and salsa. Elote, which is a pretty cool option of corn on the cob with uh, chipotle, mayonnaise, and some, well, some cheese on the side too there. And then of course you can see it in the back hanging out, looming is the al pastor. And that looks like a winner from here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. But I do notice a few curveball ingredients on this menu. I perceive them as curveball. You tell me what you think. Uh, the costilla has Thai basil. Yeah. Good I point. see that the pollo has chimichurri, which is an Argentinian yeah. 
uh, uh, spice off and serve with steak uh, sauce. Right, and one of these quesadillas has arugula in okay. it as well, yeah. So I, it's certainly, there's some, some upscale but also some non-Mexican yeah. influences here. Sure. What are your thoughts on that? I think part of that is, is this restaurant is uh, considered modern Mexican food. I mean, we can see some kind of hybridity happening here, and it, wouldn't, it makes sense. We're here in the middle of Times Square, so we've got a little bit of everything happening. Right, cool. right. What do you guys think? Amazing. Really? Actually, really good, yeah. I have no words. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be good because we're in Times Square, but this is like a nice surprise. Ariana, what makes it so good? Mm. Well, I'm eating the costilla right now. And it's really good. That's the, um, the short like rib, thai, the beef? Mm-hmm. It has, like, Thai flavors in it. Like, it feels like a, like a I don't that, know, like a That's the one with Thai basil in mm -hmm. it. Yeah. It's really good. So you sort of started off taking this class, reconnecting with your Mexican, Mexican-American roots. Now you're ending it eating a short rib taco in Times Square with Thai basil in it. Yeah, my ancestors are crying. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> but I'm loving it. <laughs> Before we wrapped up, I checked in with Steve one more time. Often, the sort of cross-pollination that happens with food and that's happened with Mexican food in Mexico and in the U.S. is a result of colonialism. It can be a result of oppression. Uh, we talked about corn versus flour tortillas and all that, but you're someone who grew up with flour tortillas. Yeah. That's like your comfort food. Sure. When you eat the food and enjoy it, I mean, how does that factor into it? How, you personally, how do you process that? Well, I mean, it's... It goes a couple ways. One is that I'm the product of colonialism. And my identity would be somebody who has mestizo, who has indigenous blood, European blood, African blood. Even people from Spain were already mixed, uh, especially religiously with uh, people who were of the Muslim faith, Jewish faith, and Christian faith before they even came here. And really putting it into a bigger context of thinking about history, people, and, uh, and the movement of people and movement of their food. There's a lot of talk about walls these days, a lot of rhetoric about walls. And what I would say is that, number one, walls don't stop people. Walls don't stop languages. And they certainly don't stop food. So wait, wait, gather around one more time. So thank you all, first of all, for including me. You guys were fantastic. This was a lot of fun. Um, I was going to say class dismissed, but I feel like Steve should say that. Oh, man. Oh, so sad to say that. Oh, oh, well, some people are going to keep eating tacos, so I can't say it's dismissed. But stay in contact with me. Let me know how everything works out. And then, of course, you got projects due next week, so don't forget. Yeah, of course. But thank you all. Thank you all for coming, too. Thank you so much. It was our pleasure. Now say class dismissed. Oh, class dismissed. <laughs> uh, no, no, do, do they not say that in college? Probably not. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's Stephen Alvarez, Associate Professor of English at St. John's University in Queens. He'll be teaching that taco literacy course again this spring. If you want to learn more about taco literacy, check out his course website at tacoliteracy.com. Or if you just want to drool over some pics of good food, check him out on Instagram at tacoliteracy. And a quick update. We originally recorded this episode a few years ago. Since then, sadly, Taqueria Sinaloense has closed. But you can still get Sinaloan specialties at a restaurant called Cielito Astoria in Queens. Note to self, go eat there. Next week on the show, I am talking with the one and only Sebastian Maniscalco, one of the biggest comics in the country and now host of the Food Network show, Well Done. Sebastian is very opinionated in general, and especially when it comes to hosting or attending a dinner party. 
I don't like when people come to my house with food they made at their house, you know, and they need to explain it to me. <laughs> and, oh, it's a family recipe, da 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 and like, oh, where should I put it? That's like, it's by the garbage. It's, it's, don't, no one's going to eat that. It don't go with what I got. That's next week. This episode was originally produced by Ann Sandy and me with editing help from Peter Clowney. Senior producer Emma Morgenstern produced this update. The show was mixed by Jared O'Connell, music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Larkin from Ithaca, New York, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.